Good afternoon, everyone. How is everyone doing today? Good. Good. That was a little, a little more quiet than I anticipated, considering there's still two more days in pain week. So uh, thank you for joining us today. Um, our session is titled Pain Management at Ground Zero. If you haven't heard me say it already, if you would, please silence your mobile devices out of respect for those around you and our speaker today. Um, and also, if you have yet to do it, please download the Pain Week app, because we're always looking for feedback on the week's event as well as this session. So with that said, our distinguished speaker today is Dr. Mark Garofoli. I believe that's how it's pronounced, Garofoli, uh, and I apologize about that. But uh, he, is in a clinical, he is an assistant clinical professor at the University of West Virginia School of Pharmacy in Morgantown. So with that said, please help me welcome Dr. Garofoli. Thank you, sir. All right, thank you, thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll throw it out there right from the beginning. It's garofoli, like a rowboat. My wife had it for like 30 seconds and came up with that, and I had it for much longer. Um, here today, uh, can you hear me in the back just to double check, make sure, thumbs up, thank you, sir. Um, so today we're, we're gonna talk about, as, as you mentioned in the title tells, pain management ground zero. What's ground zero, you say? Has anyone seen any types of media or headlines involving the opioid crisis and my home, West Virginia. Raise your hand. There's a lady in the back who didn't raise her hand. Not, no joke. <laughs> I got the view. Um, that's everyone. So, it, you know, we are, we are uh, ground zero, if you will, uh, when it comes to the opioid crisis. But what else is going on in our state? And that's what I'm primarily here today for. Got a couple talks later in the week, like uh, many of the faculty here, uh, to talk about other things as well. But today we're going to talk about what's going on in the wild and wonderful West Virginia. Uh, you know, where else from, from where it's perceived as worse should some of perhaps some of the possible answers come from? So, sorry that got cut off there, but the usual, hey, what, what does, who's this guy? Is one of my questions when I'm sitting in the seats like you, just like this morning and perhaps tomorrow again too. Um, you can read that stuff, but my family has a total of eight pharmacists in it. That's a lot of drug dealers. Set it on a recorded line, yes. Even over in Italy, there, there was one. Not anymore, some kind of counting an older one. Um, even uh, there, there's one in the third row here. My father-in-law is here actually too. So lots and lots of pharmacists in our family. Um, but if, if that doesn't work out, uh, there's also a family vineyard that we could go to that we actually visited over in the, the Marche or Marsh region of Italy. So who am I? Here's my CV. You don't need the 12-page version. That's boring. This is not. Uh, let's see if we... Yeah, that's, that's the smart Dr. Garofoli right there, by the way. Uh, give it about two decades, and that's another, hopefully, maybe another Dr. Garofoli. I don't know. Either a doctor, a pope, or an astronaut. We'll see. Um, <laughs> And then there's uh, Grandma and Old Buddy. That's the guy in the third row. Their granddad, as you might say, but it's Old Buddy as far as my two-year-old's concerned. Uh, so that's who I am. Uh, as far as what else, you know, the disclosures we all go over, I uh, had the opportunity to be on an advisory panel for DSI, uh, like many other faculty as well, too. And apparently, since I work with the university, I have to say that none of this is with the university. It's just this wild and crazy guy. Uh, as far as what we're going to go over today, we all have to have learning objectives, of course, but we're going to talk about the various guidelines that are out there. Uh, if you've been going to sessions today, like myself, uh, you've heard different things about the CDC guidelines, maybe a couple others as well, too. Goods, bads, yin, yang, two sides to every coin. But let's boil it down, if you will, to the best practices in pain management overall and just go through all those. So you're at pain week. It's day three, I believe. It is Vegas. Sometimes it's hard to tell the time or the day, but 
Uh, it's day three of pain week. I'm sure you've seen these types of things before. What is fueling this opioid crisis in our country? On the left, you have the healthcare, the legal side, of course. Uh, that's as far as the prescribing patterns across our country. Yes, those are a little dated, I believe, uh, to a year and a half old as of now, but things don't tend to change in that realm. But this opioid crisis goes much further. And I'm sure, as you've heard, and you probably already knew, it touches on the illicit side as well, too. Uh, and tomorrow we'll actually have a talk, Thug Drugs, around the same time, going into those illicit substances as well. Plan to have some fun with that. So uh, this is actually just showing the uh, Mexican cartel routes of getting diacetylmorphine, you might know it as heroin, into our country. Heroin used to come into our country from Asia, from the Middle East, and now the, the better stuff, if you will, comes from the Mexican cartels. And that's changing along the way, too. We'll get there tomorrow. But this is fueling this, as far as all the overdose um, deaths in our country. It's a lot of human beings that are dying out there. And there's a lot of stigma out there, but in the end, it's human beings' heartbeats. People in our communities are dying because of this crisis, and you know that. Here's my state, just whittled down, if you will, if you could see that. Uh, in West Virginia, it's a lot uh, darker on this map, and then up top is a lot lighter. I call that the opioid line. I did a talk once, actually, right smack dab at that line, and I told them that we weren't on the Mason-Dixon line anymore, we were on the opioid line. But my state, West Virginia, has the highest overdose rate in our country. Key word there, with respect to the lives tied to the overdose, is actually the rate. I was talking with a pharmacist yesterday at one of the sessions. Uh, Gene, if you're here somewhere, she's from Ohio. Ohio's not that far away. Ohio last year, I believe, had about 3,000 overdose deaths. We had 880-some. Yet I said, I'm talking about ground zero. What's up with that? It really makes you wonder, I hope anyway, especially when talking about an opioid crisis that involves the illicit side. We had, um, actually I'll get there, but um, th this is just showing the big picture. It's well beyond healthcare. We are part of the solutions, but we're not the end all, if you will. Here's a couple headlines I was about to talk about. <laughs> Knew it was coming. Uh, just showing uh, within our state some of the, the things that are going on. There's a blame game out there. Everyone's at fault. Write that down. Everyone's at fault. What percentage for everyone? Whether you're a drug manufacturer, whether you're a, a PBM, an insurance company, doctor, nurse, pharmacist, patient, government, everyone has a part of the fault. Here's a headline. Can't talk too much about it. Tied to some litigation for these things, so I can't really go into them. But just talking about one of them that was in our state. Down at the bottom there, that's, uh, you may have actually heard of that headline from a couple years ago. Uh, made national attention because he basically said that us as clinicians could be sued, like regarding our mortgages, sued for our prescribing or dispensing habits, if you will, uh, when it comes to a patient with substance use disorder or addiction. That's huge. Uh, you know, you think about it. I mentioned I can't go into much detail, but I'll go to this detail. If you've seen this one, this, this catches my breath if you will. A doctor-based soul is out in California, West Coast, closer to here. Um, a doctor was convicted of murder purely for prescribing habits. Were they deemed to be, as per what they said in the case, absolutely ludicrous prescribing habits? Yes. Is it anything that would be of concern for the average person at pain week? Probably not. But it's really conveying what's going on out in the, the healthcare world, if you will. How do you boil it down? Um, 
You know, I talked about the rate about two minutes ago there. Yes, in West Virginia we have the highest rates, but that whole, what about Ohio and many other states, by the way, not picking on Ohio uh, by any means. But uh, the reason I picked Ohio was uh, about a year and a half ago or so in Huntington, West Virginia, I was actually there two weeks ago, um, there was an, an outbreak of overdoses. I, I believe it was about 27 overdoses within four hours. How does that happen? A guy got on a bus in Detroit with heroin, came down to Huntington and distributed it. The first people overdosed, word in the street was, these people overdosed with this stuff because it was laced with whatever fentanyl was available. They flock to it. If you're like me, you can't wrap your head around that. That just doesn't make sense. And that's what we're dealing with here. But what I would pose to you is, what if that guy had to pee and got off the bus in Ohio? There's more people, much more people in Ohio compared to my state of West Virginia. The rate would have went up that much, whereas our rate went up that much. So it's a little bit of a play on statistics there. We've got to use them, but... Uh, the other thing, I don't like to really get into the, all the numbers and all that kind of stuff, but when you whittle it down, statistically in our country, someone dies of a drug overdose every eight minutes. That's a lot. I find that more impactful than 63 whatever. Every eight minutes, a human being dies. So we're kind of touching on the illicit side, the, also the healthcare side, but I have no ties to these books. I feel like I should sometimes because I've gotten numerous people to buy the things. Um, but if you want to read more, if you haven't read some of these already, go for it. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I have a two-year-old. I don't have that much time to read, but I've read these things. <laughs> uh, flights are wonderful, by the way. Uh, this one, uh, Dreamland, is actually mandated by some schools of medicine. I know ours mandates it for every incoming med student first year. Got to do it. Uh, American Pain talked about the old school pill mills down in Florida, but that's the one. Actually, is movie rights, so it's coming to a movie, so... Maybe hold out for that one, I guess. So, the infamous 2016 CDC guidelines. You can't read that and it's on purpose because this is what was made to distribute to help us as clinicians. You put that in my hand, I don't know what to do. And that's where we're going to kind of go with our talk today of what do we do with these things? Uh, how I would actually talk about them, and I think many others too, you separate them. So instead of this artwork a little bit of thinking of how we as clinicians go about utilizing the guidelines. Which, by the way, I would preface myself with, whether you like them, love them, or hate them, they're out there. Uh, and you'll hear talks this week, you may have already, that are over here on hating them, and over here on praising as the greatest thing ever, and here's my patient. You need to go right down in the middle. That would be my suggestion, at least, anyway. Um, the way that I break them down is basically to use or not to use. The first three are talking about to use an opioid or not. And then when you've made that decision to utilize an opioid for a patient, or if they're already on said opioid medication, then it's which one, the details, all that pharmacy stuff, if you will, for the pharmacists in the room, I guess. Uh, and then the last portion, last more than a third really, uh, is all the risk reduction things like uh, prescription drug monitoring programs, avoiding, I don't know if you heard about this, but opioids and benzos interact. I don't know if you heard about that. <laughs> yeah. There's efforts across our country even that want to alert clinicians that that's an interaction. <laughs> if you've got a pulse and a license, I mean, 
Anyway, sometimes they give you the mic and you go a little extra. So that's how I would break down the CDC guidelines if you want to go with them anyway. But then, you know, in West Virginia, we, we looked at these things and said, got a group together, experts across the state, and said, it kind of leaves you a little bit. You know, when you're looking at the previous slide even, it, it, it guides you along the way when it comes to opioids. It's all in the title. Blah, blah, blah. Opioid guidelines. We're here for pain week. We're here for pain management. There's more than opioids. There's a lot more. They get dominated, of course. But we wanted to know, one, what to do with my mouth, and two, what to do with my hands. What do I tell my patients? What do I make decisions with with my mind? And what do I do with my hands as far as where to go with that? To go another step, if you will. So sometimes we say what we were doing in our state was building upon the guidelines of 2016, but it's really just finagling a little bit more. So, West Virginia, how many people saw this documentary? Or at least heard of it, for that matter. Good golly, not that many. Three people. You know when you anticipate like 200 people raising their hands and nobody does? <laughs> Good golly. Um, that's not a bad thing, by the way. So, Oxiana is a documentary about Oceana, West Virginia. Um, it's basically talking about in a very graphic and negative way how the opioid crisis basically demolished a town and the surrounding area, if you will. So about three weeks ago, I drove through that town. Part of my other job is actually going and visiting pharmacies and seeing sites and whatnot for our school. So I drove through Oceana. And, you know, what's not covered in that documentary is it is one of the most beautiful places ever. It's, it's surrounded by mountains. It has beautiful trees everywhere. But not on Main Street. I drove down Main Street. Main Street was decimated. You could tell where the stores were. You could tell where the people were. All gone. But if you were to look at it from the 50,000-foot view, where I literally was on country roads earlier, <laughs> to look down in, absolutely beautiful. But then when you get down into it, you can see what that documentary actually talks about. But what's usually covered is just the negative. So let's, let's go into some of the positive things that are, that are coming from our state, and quite frankly, from many of your states as well, too. Um, I've collaborated with... Uh, different organizations across the country, even things like the CDC and whatnot, to see what other states are doing. So in West Virginia, this laundry list of experts, if you will, uh, this was our panel that we put together to develop our state guidelines. The idea here was to not only be geographically diverse throughout the state, because if you remember that map I pointed out, things are different north and south, but then also to be interprofessional as well to have everyone that should have a voice within reason at the table. You've got 20 folks there. You've got MDs, DOs, PharmDs, RPHs, nurses, public health, even the Board of Pharmacy representative and insurance company representatives. You know, as healthcare clinicians, we could devise any amazing strategy, but if it's not covered, you might waste your time. So we had them at the table right from the beginning. Happened to work with them, so it worked out really easy. Uh, but then whatever we were saying could be impacted to be that's what's covered. And you develop those relationships. The same relationships we want to develop with our patients, you want to develop with your, your collaborators along the way too. So we have a website. Um, Alicia was actually distributing things for us, one of her collaborators. Uh, if you have any cards near you, that's what they are. They're business cards with the website. Nothing too fancy. Uh, but we put together the guidelines. There's a 20-page version and a 90-page version. Depends on how much info you want, really. They were endorsed by every professional organization in healthcare in our state. So the state medical, state osteo, pharmacy, nursing, and even interventionalists as well, too. 
I would encourage you to check out the website and whatnot. Being the coordinator of it all, if you will, I, I could personally make sure that every part of it was healthcare. That picture was even taken by a pharmacist in our state. So it's always in the details. But uh, So if I were to describe uh, the state guidelines for us in West Virginia at ground zero, what makes them different from any other state? Uh, I did a study, and there was literally like two dozen states that have pretty predominant pain management guidelines. Uh, ours, we have two parts. There's no way you could read it, and there's a kind of a reason for that. Um, <laughs> there's no way to ever fit this on a slide. I'm not out of my mind. Um, but on the left here, we have that little wagon wheel thing going on. Uh, that would be your risk reduction strategy. That's nothing new. We're going to go over some of that here today, but there's nothing necessarily new in there. But you'd want to include all that in your patient and provider agreement or contract, if you will. I'm sure you've heard it before, especially even in the keynote. Uh, document, document, and then when you're done with that, document it. All while talking to your patient, of course, I guess. Uh, but the th distinguishing factor is this little stoplight thing on the right. I, all I want you to see is just the color. Um, what I've been told by numerous healthcare professionals is, we love the way this thing looks. I was like, all right, but you should look a little deeper. What's it actually say? So even here today, just look at the picture there. A student pharmacist came up with that. That panel of 20 experts, not smart enough to come up with that. Uh, a budding fourth-year student pharmacist, why don't you make it a stoplight, Dr. Rofley? Thumbs up. Here we are. Um, the idea was to just go through, uh, and we'll touch on this in a little bit here, of you know, how do you go about it? Uh, okay, respect this chemical you call an opioid. How do you do that? There's no guidance out there as far as algorithms. And, and you want to make it patient-to-patient along the way, don't get me wrong. You've got to have a, a paved road to actually go on, of course. So first up, just going over this risk reduction strategy. Uh, patient conversations can be a tough thing, depending on the person, I guess, or the situation. Uh, but you really want to, you know, what you say and what's perceived there, relevance is right smack dab in the middle uh, as far as what's conveyed overall. So if you were to break out the scroll, what you're going to have in your contract with your patient uh, most of us are not lawyers or JDs, we're clinicians, but not all. Um, if, if it's not said up front, it's not really a smart goal. Uh, you know, covering things like, oh, should we go over naloxone? Uh, do we do urine drug screenings we'll talk about? Uh, what about, oh, I'm going to access your prescription drug monitoring program. Should you put that on paper first? Having, you know, what happens if this doesn't work out? How do, how do we extinguish our relationship? Go over it all in the beginning, and then when it doesn't work out, or if it does work out, either way, it's a little bit easier. So, pain reduction, one of the first things here overall. You guys have all heard of pain as the fifth vital sign, right? And we don't need hands, so heads are going. All right. So, pain is the fifth vital sign. Highly debated somehow. I'll give you my version, and this is purely just my version. But what's a vital sign? Something that keeps you alive, right? So... Cavemen and women, I walk into a fire. I obviously walk out of the fire. It's hot. It hurts. Pain told me to walk out of the fire, right? Pretty basic, archaic. It kept me alive. It's a vital sign, in my opinion. But I don't stop there in my recommendation. I am accepting of what was put forth back in the 90s, whether it came from industry, whether it came from prominent organizations. Wherever it came from, it came, and it's here. So this vital sign thing, your respiratory rate, would you ever want to extinguish that? Of course not. Not that silly. Your heart rate, you don't stop that, right? You keep, you keep it going. 
So pain, would the goal be ever, or always I should say, not ever, but always to eliminate pain completely? If it's a vital sign, possibly not. Yet, the word analgesic is derived from Greek meaning without pain. So, pharmacists in the room, you work in a community pharmacy, what's aisle five say, analgesics? If our patients knew it, it literally would be set in the goal without pain. Is your ibuprofen going to do that? Probably not. It's, it's in the details, and sometimes as clinicians we haven't thought about that. Uh, the goal might not be to eliminate pain. In fact, most of the time it's not going to be. But we want to be compassionate and help our patients, of course. Improving their function is another thing. Getting somebody on their pain scale from a 9 down to a 7 might never happen in my practice. But they might be able to go out and get the mail like they used to be. And then I'm happy. They are too. Uh, as far as pain scales go, I'm not going to play this because it's like 10 minutes long and we don't have time for that. Somebody's smiling so they've seen Brian Reagan before. <laughs> Sorry, not calling you out. Uh, I had this shown to me. If you watch this video, YouTube it later on. Don't do it now. Seriously, it's 10 minutes long. If you don't laugh in this video, attend one of the psych sessions. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Uh, it's also a non-healthcare guy telling us healthcare people how healthcare is. He talks about going to the ER, and I'll, I'll spoil it. Uh, back in the day, some ERs didn't have valet parking. And in his words, if that's not the largest oversight of mankind, <laughs> I, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, but then he goes into pain scales as well, too. Kind of nails it. And he's trying to describe what, you know, is a correlated, is a one correlated to an aspirin, is a nine correlated to morphine, what, you know. What's with these pain scales? Uh, he says it best. On uh, your time, you're in Vegas, have some fun, enjoy that later on. Uh, to give you some reference in your practice, though, what you could possibly use on Monday, Couple different pain scales. This one, peg scale, it's basically talking about pain, intensity, enjoyment of life, and general activity. Again, not just the number, but actually function. Can you enjoy life? Another one here is the graded chronic pain scale. The reason I show this is it's two quick questions. Don't worry about the details on the slide. It's just remembering it's two questions. You can fit that into a 15-minute appointment. You can fit that into a seven-minute appointment. You can do it. One of my favorites, actually. Uh, at WVU, we collaborated with the Department of Defense and Veterans, and they came up with this, actually, and they just say, hey, it's your tax dollars, so you could use it, too. Uh, as they call it, the DVPRS, they have videos online, literally cartoons and everything, our tax dollars in action. But the difference with this pain scale is not necessarily over here on the left, with the faces, the color, the numbers, all that stuff. Look to the right. That's where we can help our patients. What this pain scale does is say, yes, you might be a 9, you might be a 10, but you also are going to be evaluated on your activity, your sleep, your mood, and your stress levels. I may never be able to get half of my patients from a 9 to an 8 or a 9 to a 6, but I can try and help them sleep at night. And from what I've learned, if you sleep better, you're going to have a better life too. So I would encourage people to check that out for your own practice. A couple of the other, just going over these risk reduction strategies overall. Uh, just having smart goals, um, you know, acute use of opioid medications, highly debated these days with limitations and thresholds and whatnot. But, you know, not every situation is going to lead to chronic pain, but many will. But setting that goal of we're going to use this for seven days, 14 days, three days, whatever your state says, and then we'll reevaluate another appointment, if you will. But just actually setting those goals along the way. Here's one of my favorites, actually, uh, as far as going over with a patient proper medication storage. My father-in-law sitting there. He talks about this all the time. 
Uh, as far as the, the medicine cabinet, if you learn anything this week, don't use a medicine cabinet. Uh, they're in the bathroom. It's the most humid area. It's the worst place to put medicines or, quite frankly, anything. Yet they call it a medicine cabinet. You know who uses a medicine cabinet? Uh, those that are thieves during a real estate open house. They know exactly where to go. Uh, open house is like the greatest thing ever in the criminal world. Free food and free drugs. I kid you not. I don't make it up because I don't have to. So don't use a medicine cabinet. Second part here is obviously lock it up. But I guarantee you, present self included in the past, many of you have probably said, this is your hydrocodone, morphine, oxycodone, whatever it is, it is. Your Alprazolam, for that matter. Lock it up. Think about that. We're actually educating our patients that that is valuable, street value. Lock up the lisinopril, too. My kid takes 20 of those, there's going to be problems. Just like if it's 20 of whatever other controlled substance you want. Lock it all up. It's just a little different psychological perspective. Not a psychiatrist, by the way, but... Now, how do you get rid of the meds? This is where the EPA and the FDA need to sit down and have a beverage together. There's differences out there as far as what the recommendations are. So the EPA basically says, in a nutshell, it's not up there, what about the fishes? We would never have you flush anything down the toilet. Whereas the FDA says, flush. Here's a list of three dozen medications. To my knowledge, are all controlled substances, typically opioid medications, sometimes amphetamines. Flush them. And here we are as clinicians. We're on that side or we're this side. We kind of have to be on, in my opinion, the FDA side with being in healthcare. But do we personally agree with it? That's your choice. And there's also the DEA collection zones and all that kind of stuff too. So other risk reduction strategies that are out there. Uh, psychological evaluation. I had this done on me about a month and a half ago. I had my annual physical. I go there, get my lab work, trying to be a good little patient as we never are as healthcare professionals. And they asked me the first two questions. It was a PHQ-2. So I needed the first two questions just to assess. And I literally said to the gentleman, the doc, I was like, oh, you just PHQ-2'd me. And he looked at me like, what? You know what I'm up to? And I'm like, so are you going to do the nine? He's like, no, you're fine. Okay. Um, it's two questions. We could fit that into our time to screen for any of these psychological issues, not just depression, but you know this concentrates on depression as well, too. Uh, opioid risk screenings. I have an article coming out, I, it's, I believe it's next month, on uh, practical pain management, talking about opioid screenings. And my version of that, I'll give you the opening line or lines, it's talking about potato chips. If you haven't figured it out already, I like to think outside the box. So back in the 60s, there was the Lay's potato chips. Bet you can't eat just one. Bitch, you can't go an entire patient's life and only screen them once. Life changes. Uh, screen as much as you can. I, I am often confronted with clinicians saying, well, they've been on hydrocodone for 20 years. What am I going to do it now for? Life happens. There's validated screening tools, different version of looking at it here, that are made specifically for patients that fit that accord. And there's ones for opioid-naive patients as well, too. And then they basically come down to whether... There's two decisions. Has the patient had an opioid before? Yes or no? And then do you want them to fill out a survey? Or do you want to administer it as a, as a professional as well, too? Some tough questions that could be asked. Uh, some other uh, faculty members have talked about the ORT, um, the opioid risk tool, if you will. Dr. Lynn Webster had uh, validated it, basically. And uh, I, I personally utilize that in an MTM program, talking to patients over the phone. And there's some tough questions in there. Some really easy ones as well, too. But it really starts that conversation off to show someone that you care. Uh, and that, that's one of the big things. So 
I'm a pharmacist. I certainly can't jump over drug interactions. Always want to screen for drug interactions, uh, whether it's the, the typical CYP450. You've got our transporters like PGP. Uh, there's a lot of diversity out there. I, I believe even in the exhibit hall, there's the different genetic testings now. There we're concentrating on things like codeine, tramadol. That's pretty much the heavy hitters there. Uh, serotonergic. Um, gosh, if in my um, integrated pain center that I work in, that I'm blessed to work in, uh, if I, the director, if he comes to me one more time and says, what is with your peeps and this serotonin syndrome concern? Every single medication interaction they're calling me on. And I'm like, oh, when did I become the face of pharmacy here? Man, that, that's a tough one. Like, how do you go about that? Uh, and my recommendation was just ask them. Did they talk about it? Hey, if you have the flu, patient XYZ, if you feel like you have the flu and it's a little bit worse or whatever, don't wait. Talk to your, give a call sooner. If it's Friday, don't wait till Monday. Call Friday night. That's what we're here for. And of course, sedatives, uh, a little funkier, different. I apologize for that wording not working out on that laptop compared to mine. Apples and Macs, they don't, they don't get along. Um, but as far as sedative interactions, here's the, the different version of it. Your eyes, I hopefully, are going right over here on the right. As far as the different words that I, some I've heard and some I've just made up, as far as the combinations, maybe they're a little funky. Uh, of course, there's the deadly duo, typically uh, opioid and a benzo. Uh, and then there's that, what's commonly referred to as holy trinity. Nothing holy about that. I would call it the unholy trinity. That would be the opioid, the benzo, and the muscle relaxer, or the hypnotic. You put all four of them together, quattro killer. So, what do those types of interactions lead to? Opioid overdoses or sedative interactions that lead ultimately to people stopping breathing. As far as the naloxone products to address that, uh, here's a, a, your handout there is going to have it accordingly, but uh, a breakdown of basically all the different forms of naloxone that are available, everything down to even the NDC so you could order it Monday morning or maybe from your phone tonight. Uh, relative comparison of the cost, didn't go specific there in respect to the companies and whatnot, but just uh, the dollar signs to show some relativity, if you will. If I had to tell you anything as far as the naloxone differences of products, I highlighted in red here. Uh, if you have the manual kit that you put together, um, that's basically going to be the one spray in each nostril, so both sides. As compared to the prepackaged, um, there's no other way to say it without avoiding brand names, but Narcan nasal spray, that's just one spray, one nostril, and you're done for that administration. And then you're going through the whole protocol, if you will. Um, that's the biggest thing there as far as the differences for doses, uh, administration, if you will, of them. Who should be a, a candidate to talk about naloxone? Not necessarily receive the naloxone, because that could be a patient decision, not necessarily our decision, but it is a do-no-harm concept to talk about it no matter what. What this goes over here is, well, what's the different reasonings for bringing it up with any patient? I would uh, bring your attention on the bottom voluntary. If they ask about it, we talk about it. That's, that's our job. It doesn't mean we dispense it. That's a professional slash personal along the way. But the talking about it is a whole other thing. Uh, a couple funkier things, any respiratory condition. The concern is respiratory depression. So obviously if there's a respiratory condition, it's something for someone taking an opioid you'd want to go over. But not just your common COPD, asthma, sleep apnea, smoking anything. Hookah every other Saturday night, talk about naloxone if they're getting an opioid. Uh, that Saturday night could go take a little turn for them, if you will. As far as the overdose symptoms, things to watch for, uh, got them all on here. And what everybody always talks about is pinpoint pupils, hypotension, bradycardia. You know, like if you're hanging out at a party and you got your stethoscope with you for some odd reason. How do you, what, eh, somebody is, I, 
and I know I'm on a line here because this is involving human beings dying with all respect there. But if somebody's laying on the floor and they're dying, my eyes are going to be closed if I'm that person. What's pinpoint pupils going to do? In 2018, are you going to walk over and just randomly open them up? Yeah, maybe you will. Like, good for, for you, but maybe you won't. How do you do it? We're in Vegas. There's parties going on 24-7, and they're really loud. If you leave pain week, by the way, down the hallway, it's really loud, even by the restaurants. Somebody's overdosing from an opioid in that situation, not only are they going to help you, you're, you're not even going to hear the death rattle. It's <sighs> my feeble attempt, sorry. Uh, hypoxia, though, you'll see that. Think of the Smurfs. Their lips and their, their fingers will be turning blue. I don't care how loud it is, you've got to have good vision, I guess. But you could see that 20 yards away, even. Somebody's laying there, not moving, whatever, and you see the blue. At that point, you would want to, uh, if possible, be considering calling 911 uh, or administering naloxone if it's available. Different guidelines will say different things as far as which chicken or the egg here. Uh, the bottom line is no matter what, you have to tell someone to call 911 and administer the naloxone. It could be in whatever order, depending. This is SAMHSA. They say basically call 911 first. Back in the big picture of risk reduction strategies, of course, do pill counts. For the sake of time, it's just double-checking adherence, not necessarily the, the criminal side of things. Urine drug screening and testing. Uh, another thing, I gave you the, uh, the comedian to check out, so uh, thewizinator.com. Check that one out later today. Um, your mind will be blown what's on there. Um, you could basically buy whatever urine you want these days, and it'll come with a nice little warm packet. If you don't live in the desert and you want to keep your hands warm, those hand warmers, duct tape it to your leg, put that pack there, and that's what you can buy on there. And you can buy the urine that's specific to the drug that you'd be utilizing and your metabolites. The streets know, folks. So, urine drug screening and testing. Yep. We'll go a little deeper. Get comfy. Uh, as far as the differences, the cup is cheaper than the big HPLC machine if that's what they're using. Um, not going too much into the details there, but what you would want to know, um, as far as the active metabolites of different uh, pharmacological substances, opioids, if you will, this is just showing the active metabolites and those that are actually readily available on the market as well, too, in our toolbox for our patients. It's not showing the inactive things. There's a lot of stuff missing on here. Like, for instance, with heroin to morphine, heroin is diacetylmorphine. One of the metabolites is monoacetylmorphine. That's actually what the coroner's test for. I was talking two, three weeks ago with our chief medical examiner. They're talking about how, yeah, they're testing for that. They're seeing it. You may hear elsewhere you can't test for it. You can test for that. That's not fake news. Uh, it's what they do every day, especially in my state. What they're finding now is that uh, I got the, re the reports that week and a half ago or whenever it was that, uh, yeah, so the dealers are giving out heroin now, and there's free meth with it. Buy one, get one. We'll talk tomorrow, Thug Drugs. Um, but you can test for that. And this is just what the point here with urine drug screening, if you will, especially the cheap cup compared to the fancy test. Uh, if, if someone's prescribed codeine, depending on the dose, it'd have to be pretty high. You could be expecting and wanting these metabolites as your result there. And that's where a lot of times in, in doing the interprofessional version of it all, I'll have a, a colleague say, oh, well, I'm prescribing, you know, codeine and all of a sudden they're, they got hydrocodone in there. You know the street stuff with that. I'm like, Thumbs up. That means that they didn't take the pill when they walked in the door an hour before. They've been taking it all week. That's a metabolite. We're good. We're good. Depending on the amount, by the way. Uh, as far as uh, one of the questions I get is the, what's the difference with these different panels, especially for employment? There's the 7, 10, 12, 13, and there's a couple others as well too. 
uh, the different panels, if you will. What I'm trying to do here is basically say what's involved in each of those. So the seven panels, that first column, and then the 10 just adds on methadone, propoxyphene, quaaludes of all things, and so on and so on. What's the difference there? I am no med chemist, but the difference is based on the structures. These are the main structural classes of opioids. Don't get lost in the details, but all the way to the left, the phenanthrenes with the five rings, that's the most common structural class. Where does that come into play for these wonderful things? Well, liken these to a pregnancy test, the, the urine one. Um, it'll tell you that there's false positives and false negatives, but put that to the side. It'll tell you if you're pregnant, but it won't tell you boy or girl. It's like the dumbest thing you heard today, right? Well, if somebody is fentanyl, and it's a peak cup for this, it's not going to come up. Same thing with methadone, tramadol. And don't we see that on the streets? Or even if something goes to the illicit side? Of course we do. But it's not what's tested for. On top of that, going back to the conversations to have with patients before any of you even decide to do a urine drug screening or testing, just as a recommendation, have a conversation asking point blank, what is in your body, patient of mine? If you don't do that, then my peeps... You're going to run the test on me. I can test positive for, let's call it opioids, which is probably just one of them. Hey, Doc, forgot to tell you. I uh, had a UTI last week. I took Cipro. Sorry. I just debunked you. That's uh, talking about the quinolones right there. Oh, by the way, I, I have seasonal allergies. Forgot to tell you, I took a Benadryl last night. It doesn't hold up in court, folks, and it doesn't hold up in our offices either. If you don't know those things or you don't think about that or have that conversation, don't do it. It's basically wasting time because you could be debunked or outsmarted, as they say. What I would call urine drug screening is the cops as conversation starters. They don't hold up anywhere, but they can start a conversation. Whereas urine drug testing holds up everywhere, whether in an ER or a judicial system, either way. There's no debunking those. So prescription drug monitoring programs. What this is basically showing, this is not my map, first off, but... This is uh, the national version. It's basically saying that all of our states and territories now have a PDMP. A little bit of an asterisk there. Missouri. I heard it earlier this morning in a session, actually. Missouri technically right now only has it in certain counties. You have to get the full map there. There's a senator who happens to be an MD, by the way, whose term has now expired and he cannot run again, who's worried about uh, confidentiality, so has been blocking it from legislation. He gone. The two new candidates that are running have already said, we will have a PDMP. So whatever side the political coin you're on, Missouri's going to have it across the map really soon, probably about a year and a half. Uh, But right now, some counties do have it, so it's everywhere. Here's a fancy reference for you of what state had it when. Uh, And and what I find interesting here, actually, is California. If anybody's from California, you guys are like first in everything. You had it back in 1939. How do you do that? Like, the AOL guy wasn't even running yet. My gosh, you guys are good. So, your PDMP. We're all healthcare clinicians, and we think we're all smart and all that. Yeah, I live in a college town. And I would never do this, of course, but for like 100 bucks, I could get a couple fake IDs and debunk your PDMP and, oh, I don't know, within the day. Is exactly what I said to some high-level CDC officials looking to make the PDMPs better across the country. And they were worried. Probably thought I was nuts. <laughs> they were worried. A fake idea is the way to get around that thing, is what the dark side says. Uh, the ones even when that have like the scanning and whatnot, too. So in pharmacies, do we have ID checkers like the bouncers here in Vegas? Of course not. 
Here's a couple options for you to do that. As far as DEA red flags, if you are a healthcare clinician, it is my opinion that you know these. You don't need to talk about it. Well, how do I sense that something's off? We know it. What's never included in CEs is what do you do when the dog catches the car? What happens then? I, I managed a pharmacy once where I had a DEA detective for three months in my store. I got stories that we could be up here for eight hours. <laughs> but we caught the car a lot, literally, at drive through um, <laughs> I was the pharmacist inside. I guess he was the doggy outside. Um, but what do you do? You know, how do you handle that? Calm, collected, emotional intelligence along the way. Call those involved first. What I always tell our student pharmacists, whether it's a drug interaction or a diversion or whatever, have your facts and then pick up the phone. Don't line yourself up to look silly. If you've got to report something, there's where you go. Uh, phone and website. So, I want to get your blood boiling because, hey, we're in Vegas. Well, we've got you all patched up. I'll give you a script for some ibuprofen, and that should help with the swelling. Don't you think she might need something a little stronger? You mean like this? It says heroin. I don't think so. That's crazy. Do you know that most prescription painkillers like Vicodin and Oxycontin are opiates, and they work just the same as heroin? And if not used sparingly, can lead to heroin addiction. You know what? She's tough. We're just going to stick to the ibuprofen. Sounds good. Not a doctor. He's an actor. Was somebody about to clap? Gosh. I heard it. I don't know. Maybe a book fell. I'm not, I'm not joking. Somebody really did. Um, I, I'm really conflicted in showing you that. But you know what? I'll challenge myself sometimes, too. I, there's at least, I'll split you in half. There's half of you that are looking at me right now saying, what? We're not heroin dispensers. Well, so then the other half of you are saying, finally, he said it. Finally. Where's the answer? Well, again, my patient's right here in the middle. And we've got to do what's best for each individual patient. Turns out in Canada, that's legal. UK, that's legal. Paraguay, they legal. They decriminalize everything. Um, it's just how we view things as well. There's the other side there, too, where, I, I, again, I'm not even telling you my opinion on that video because it might not be good and it might not be bad. I don't know. But I want you to think about that. What is the difference to acetyl groups? So the second part of our, our guidelines within West Virginia is going into those clinical treatment algorithms. And we're actually not going to spend too much time on that, but just breaking down pain into the three main types, if you will. Sometimes people throw inflammation in there, too. Uh, but three main types. And that's what the three stoplights are for, basically. And I'd encourage you to check these out online. Everybody, uh, you know, after you're done with the comedian and the looking up that second video, I know you're looking for it now, um, and all that stuff. You can check these out, too. Uh, this is an attempt to actually get one of them. So if you're looking here, like the first column, if you will, no susceptive pain, that normal dull back pain, if you will. What we did here was... Um, Kind of interesting to a point. It's what to try and then try a second grouping, if you will. So in this case, like try, of course, non-pharmacological. There's like 24 different options. How do you go about that? Divide them strategically into active and passive. Think about me as the patient. I am either the person that says, Doc, I, I'm in this. I want to I be better. Or, Doc, take care of me. You got this. You're the professional. Which one is better for massage? To lay there and do nothing. The one that says, Doc, take care of me. So you can curtail your non-farm to that. It's only one tiny little line, but there's like two, do two dozen options. Um, then going into things like adjuvants, even topicals, and whatnot, obviously. But then going typically by controlled substance classes. 
And uh, I believe it was actually Dr. Gooden yesterday talking about future analgesics. He literally, I think it was this room actually up here, said, you know, if we could just make guidelines that are just basically based on controlled substance classes. I sit right back there and I'm like, yeah, we did that. It also gives a little bit of longevity. You know, gabapentin, or actually just gabapentin and pregabalin have been made a C5 in my state, and some of your states have done it too, Kentucky, I believe. Um, so it, there's longevity to it as well. Uh, marijuana, where does it fit? Um, that's tomorrow, I know. Um, and there I'd be talking about the actual pharmaceutical products that are coming, not even your Epidiolex that's out there helping kids with seizures or whatever, the things that are going to be marketed for pain. I can't wait for the TV ads, personally. Maybe we'll have them up here someday. But um, they'll be controlled something, everybody's eyeing up three. But they'd be in our guidelines even, not the recreational or medical that have other effects. So three different versions of that. And again, just putting it all together here as far as the t uh, within our state, there's many different things going on as far as addiction treatment, the West Virginia way, the, the COPE programs, uh, the, these guidelines, the different pain centers. But this is the, the idea here overall. Going back, one thing I skipped over to the risk reduction strategy, it's inherent in all of us to realize that it's a patient risk reduction. Turns out it's also a provider risk reduction. Remember those headlines I showed you? If you're doing these things, when my phone rings and it's an expert witness scenario, we're all good. It's a risk for everyone. We didn't put that in the title on purpose because I knew I would just say it on this stage someday. So a lot of good stuff going on in West Virginia. Kind of highlighted some of the things here today. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of things we're known for, and you might not have even known. We pretty much invented Mother's Day, and I believe Father's Day, too. Uh, we've got Brad Paisley, uh, Jennifer Gardner, Jack Dempsey, all the hidden figures, Morgan Spurlock, one of the best documentary guys ever. Uh, and, by the way, we're proud, hardworking, and resilient. It's a movement within the state. We've got a lot going on. Every time you read one of the headlines that's knocking my state, think about this talk and how you were at Pain Week and went over some of these different things along the way. Uh, you know, as far as the best practices overall, we touched on a lot of these things overall here today, but one of my taglines I always go with is, people respect what you inspect, not what you expect. Have a conversation with your patient, and then do it again. Once prevention is always worth a pound of treatment, it's a lot easier. Repetition, of course. You're here at Pain Week, you're to get that whole never stop learning thing. And of course, do no harm. So, I was originally told we had to have questions. That paragraph there, we'll make it easy on you, basically says, if you're going to have one of those patient-provider contracts, which of these things are you not going to have in it? Now, I have the app, too, that I don't know where the guy went that he talked about. So I know you have the next slide that basically tells you, of course you would not have mandatory cash payments in your practice, if you're, and, and you're not going to put it in your contract as well. That would that'd be like a double. Two wrongs don't make it right. Um, thinking about those clinical treatment algorithms that we went over, what this is basically saying, uh, Mrs. Faking It, you've got to love patient names that we make up. So Mrs. Faking It is basically uh, coming here with uh, diabetic peripheral neuropathy, and this is a new scenario. So which of these A through Ds would you be looking at first, of course? I've got a talk Saturday morning about muscle relaxants. Kills me to not put the quotes on that one there, but that would allude to an answer. Uh, TCAs, SNRIs, the adjuvants, mixed action opioids or Botox. Uh, as you probably see in your app, you're going to those lines that are not even controlled substances yet. You know, starting there. What I didn't have on there was even the non-farms or even topicals, if it's on a certain uh, limb, if you will. So, you're at a loud club tonight, because things end early here in Vegas, uh, on Las Vegas Boulevard, a.k.a. the Strip. 
uh, your friend is sitting in a VIP area, one of those bottle things that everybody does these days, they're like 400 bucks, uh, and you see somebody 20 yards away, and you have some concerns because you're at pain weekend and you learn some stuff. Your concern is that they were overdosing from heroin. Which of these things would you be able to tell from your VIP booth compared to their VIP booth? Heard it. Hypoxia. The smurf, the blue, if you will. So uh, what I would whittle it down to, uh, the, the thing I would close with here today for you, and I greatly thank you for your time on quite these controversial topics, but you know I mentioned originally the whole every eight minutes. In the time I've been up here with a mic, half a dozen people have died in our country due to this. Uh, they're not clapping for that. that. That's just, that's tough. And there's a lot of stigma out there, as I mentioned, and, and as you know. It, it's human beings. Uh, so when you leave here, you know, when you're going back on, on Monday even or, or whatnot, even Sunday, I, I, I like to think outside the box. So one of my favorite bands is Coldplay. We'll have them tell you how it is. I believe they say it best. So before you walk out the door, you still have time. Before you walk out the door, make a decision. A lot of the things that we covered here today, I just honestly hope that you, you're already doing in your practice. I'm sure you're here. It's pain week. You probably are doing nine times, nine out of ten of them. But do one more. Have that conversation with your patient. Decide. You're either, they said it best. You're either helping or you're hurting. Which one are you going to do? And hey, if you didn't learn anything about pain management there, my kid will teach you something else. Any questions or whatever, feel free. I thank you guys for your time. I hope you had a good time. <laughs>